Hello and welcome to the Church Times podcast. I'm Hattie Williams, senior reporter, and I'm joined today by Madeleine Davies, deputy news and features editor, and Adam Beckett, news reporter. This week, we discuss the warnings made by the Archbishop of Canterbury in his forthcoming book, Reimagining Britain, in which he argues that the UK is at a political and moral tipping point. We will also look at the reactions to the Ecumenical Marriage Bill, which was debated in the House of Lords last week, and reports on growing numbers of converts to Christianity. First, Archbishop Welby's new book, Reimagining Britain, Foundations of Hope, will be published on Thursday. In it, he says that Brexit could act as a catalyst of British introspection, xenophobia and self-pity. Adam, you've read the book. What themes did you pull out? It tackles the UK in broad strokes. He thinks there's three areas that really need to be tackled in his vision for modern Britain, housing, education and uh, healthcare largely predictable but he has some interesting things to be said throughout the book particularly on housing not overly radical ideas but he suggests for example the idea that unoccupied homes should be possessed by the state after a certain amount of time which is a policy that the Labour Party are currently pushing overall it's a book full of optimism for a new Britain after Brexit one guided by Christian tradition as you'd expect from a book by the Archbishop of Canterbury but also one that is tolerant to immigration that is open to all, that is liberal with a small L, but in which the family and tradition still matters. Was there anything particularly unexpected in it? As Andrew Brown notes in his press column this week, there are a couple of juicy quotes about austerity. He calls austerity not merely an economic term, it is a word that almost invariably conceals the crushing of the weak, the unlucky, the ill and a million of others. Austerity is a theory for the rich and a reality of suffering for the poor. He didn't actually speak about that at his press conference, perhaps unsurprisingly, but that much of an attack on austerity, especially when it's still a word used by current Conservative government and uh, the governments over the past seven years, is quite strong, really, and perhaps shows his true feelings about the way that the state is going at the moment. Other than that, it's interesting that he both criticises the people who are extremely pro-Brexit as being outlandishly optimistic about the future of Brexit and those who are stuck on the Remain side who are, he compares them to Marvin the Paranoid Android from uh, Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, so kind of moany and a bit depressed. And so it's, a, it's an interesting read. The one question I have really is, who's it for? It's great that we have uh, an archbishop that's willing to speak views like this, but I don't know really who they're aimed at. At the press conference, what did the Archbishop actually say about the book itself? I mean, obviously you hadn't actually had a chance to read it then because it was released that day. Yeah, he presented it as a vision of hope. The subtitle of the book is uh, Foundations for Hope and that's what he really wanted to get across. He started off the press conference by saying that by character he's, a, he's an Eeyore, he's quite a pessimistic person. Perhaps that makes the idea that he's published a book that is all about optimism a bit strange but no he, he was very positive about the book and he was very positive about getting his thoughts down on paper as well the questions that he was faced at the press conference were largely about because no one had managed to read the book yet were largely about controversial topics like sharia law and the future of the family and society mm. and he dodged some questions on disestablishment and other topics didn't he he didn't really want to be drawn into the, the a debate around whether um, bishops should still be in the house of lords in a book where he debates the future for Britain, he still sees the Church of England as at the heart of it, again unsurprisingly, but he doesn't really deal with uh, why that is or how to deal with ongoing criticism about the, the closeness between church and state. 
I think you can trace some of the origins of the book back to a debate which Justin Welby initiated in the House of Lords um, over a year ago. That was exploring British values and whether such a thing can be said to exist. A really lengthy debate with lots of involvement from peers across the House discussing yeah, the origins of British values and whether they are kind of timeless and universal and still exist today. He focused very much in his opening speech on the story of the Good Samaritan and suggested that was sort of really fundamental to British values and also something which many other cultures and countries share. So I think it's definitely been a kind of a long-standing interest. I think his sense that as the leader of the Anglican Church, he does have a responsibility to articulate a direction for the country and certainly an archbishop who hasn't shied away from being political, maybe not party political always, but very happy to comment on the issues of the day. It's interesting that the recent theological review of the CNC did talk about whether we have enough bishops who kind of have the theological training and the moral authority to speak into issues and become sort of public intellectuals. So perhaps this could be kind of seen as a contribution to that. Also in the news this week, an ecumenical marriage bill that seeks to allow non-Anglican marriages to be solemnised in Church of England buildings was debated in the House of Lords. The Bishop of Winchester was in that debate. Adam, you've also been covering this. Can you tell us more? A Conservative peer called Lord Deben has brought forward a private member's bill to attempt to force the Church of England to allow other Christian denominations and other religions to have marriages in a Church of England church without any involvement from the Church of England. It passed first reading last July and it passed second reading as is normal in the House of Lords last week. But what was interesting was how opposed the church is to Lord Deben's bill. Bishop Dakin, the the Bishop of Winchester, suggested that the private member's bill that Lord Deben's put forward affords potential legal rights to the use of churches to new religious movements with which the Church of England does not have any existing formal ecumenical relationship. So the idea isn't just that churches that the Church of England has a relationship with could use churches, could use their buildings, it could be open to pretty much anyone, um, which I think is slightly alarming to the Church of England. Also, there's a question of convention and procedure because Parliament, as a rule, doesn't legislate for the Church of England unless it's specifically asked to. In the case of women bishops, for example, it's left to a synod to bring forward legislation that is then ratified and passed by Parliament. And so the government has refused to support it because it doesn't have any support from the Church of England or the Roman Catholic Church or the church in Wales, so it's probably not going to end up going anywhere, but it is interesting that the Church of England does have so much opposition to it. Why do you think this bill was brought about in the first place and at this particular time? Lord Deben converted to Catholicism some time ago, and his daughter, who is Catholic, wanted to be married in their local Church of England church, but couldn't have a, a Roman Catholic wedding in a Church of England church, as current rules stand. It's partly that. And it's, it's a matter that has concerned other peers. Other peers spoke of examples where it's been hindrance to weddings, but the, the government did say that they, they haven't had sufficient evidence that this is actually a big enough problem to break convention like this. It does seem like a relatively small compared to other things that, that are concerning the Church of England at the moment. There is another marriage bill which has mustered more support than the ecumenical one to include mothers' names on marriage certificates. It's been the case since 1837 that mothers are not included on the register. It's actually the fathers who sign. 
We've actually got a comment piece in this week by the Bishop of St Albans, Dr Alan Smith, and the second Church Estates Commissioner, Dame Caroline Spellman. And they have actually introduced identical bills in the House of Lords and the House of Commons, respectively, to ensure that this happens. Clearly it's something that is out of step with modern society and it's something that the government is supporting uh, both in the House of Lords and the House of Commons. As long as time is found for it on the legislative timetable, then I see no reason why this bill won't be passed, unlike the ecumenical marriage bill. We have some strong features this week in the paper, including a piece by Abigail Fryman-Rauch on churches and cathedrals reporting an increasing number of converts to Christianity. Madeline, you commissioned this piece. Is there a trend forming here? That's what's suggested by some of the dioceses who spoke to Abigail. We wanted to look at this partly because there had been concerns raised about what happens to people who convert to Christianity. Is there support then in the church, given that some of them will face some really challenging circumstances, and perhaps facing rejection from family, and from friends and from their community? In really extreme cases, you know, people have had to move house. So that was really one of the triggers for the piece, but we were also aware of a number of new congregations and services forming around the country, specifically kind of serving these new communities, particularly some of the Iranian communities where there have been large numbers of converts. So although we couldn't kind of get numbers on how many baptisms are for converts, that's not data that's collected, we did um, learn that Birmingham, Durham, Leeds, Lichfield, Manchester, Newcastle, Sheffield and Sutherland, Nottingham are some of the dioceses where there are reports of a growing trend. And a lot of this work has actually grown out of supporting asylum seekers and refugees. So although people in the interview stress that you know, you need to be very careful not to exploit people who are in those situations and it's not necessarily a ministry of outreach. It is a ministry of welcome. So if people do turn to Christianity, the church has to be there to support and welcome them. But um, definitely a tension there where there's some anxiety. Abigail talks about how conversion is a difficult word, can have associations with coercion, proselytism, and, you know, in some communities it would be regarded as betrayal. So quite a sensitive topic. Abigail spoke to a few people to inform the piece. What do they have to say from their own experience? So we start off with an interview with a guy called Ali, who is a 29-year-old Afghan refugee. He came to the UK and got British citizenship and also married a young Muslim woman. But as he kind of questioned the faith of his birth and explored Christianity, he became under threat from his own family, so there were threats to kill him. And eventually he um, actually attempted suicide. He was put in touch with church leaders who helped him to relocate and he's seemingly been very well supported by the church. So that's kind of a positive example of where, you know, the church was able to provide support. He just talks in detail, I guess, about his why he went on that journey and what it's cost him. What are the challenges for churches? I think one of them is that there has been this suspicion that people might be declaring that they'd become Christians to help their application for asylum. Mm. That is one of the things that's been reported in the national press. This piece um, suggests that, you know, in some areas people take quite a cautious approach, so it might be that they suggest a wait for baptism or even kind of a timeline between baptism and confirmation to give that time for formation in the faith. And one of the priests says, in terms of accompanying asylum seekers to hearings, he wouldn't do that unless he'd known the person for at least six months. So there are kind of attempts to discern kind of how authentic the conversion has been in some areas. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of the Church Times podcast. You can find more news, analysis, comment and book reviews on our website, 
churchtimes.co.uk. If you are not yet a subscriber to the Church Times, you can try your first 10 issues for just £10. You'll get the paper delivered to your door every Friday, plus full access to our website and digital archive. Go to churchtimes.co.uk forward slash subscribe to find out more. The music for this podcast was provided by Sought After Sounds. Tune in next Friday for the next episode. Thank you.